All right. Now, during those days, when the disciples were increasing in number, the Hellenists complained against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. And the 12 called together the whole community of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should neglect the word of God in order to wait at tables. Therefore, friends, select from among yourselves seven men of good standing, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may appoint to this task, while we, for our part, will devote ourselves to prayer and to serving the word. What they said pleased the whole community, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, together with Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. They had these men stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. The word of God continued to spread and the number of the disciples increased greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Stephen, full of grace and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freemen, as it was called, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and others of those from Silius and Asia stood up and argued with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he spoke. Then they secretly instigated some men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up the people as well as the elders and the scribes. Then they suddenly confronted him, seized him, and brought him before the council. They set up false witnesses who said, this man never stops saying things against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses handed on to us. And all who sat in the council looked intently at him, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Then the high priest asked him, are these things so? And Stephen replied, we're going to continue down in verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you are for ever opposing the Holy Spirit, just as your ancestors used to do. Which of these prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one. And now you have become his betrayers and murderers. You are the ones that received the law as ordained by angels, and yet you have not kept it. When they heard these things, they became enraged and ground their teeth at Stephen but filled with the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of God. But they covered their ears and with a loud shout all rushed together against him. Then they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning Stephen, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he died. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray.
Lord, we thank you for your word. <clears throat> we thank you for the way it has the ability to change our hearts. We ask that as we learn from your spirit this morning, that would be what occurs. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. Good morning, everyone. My name is Lane. I'm the lead pastor here. And today we're continuing in our series going through the book of Acts called Our Origin Story. And the heart of this series has been to look back on the events of the, the birth of what we call the church and to see how what happened in the church back then can teach us about what the church is supposed to be now. Because I believe that although we sometimes fall short of what God has called us to, that if the church can be all that it was called to be, that it is still the best hope for the world. <clears throat> so today, we're going to be reflecting on an interesting theme in the passage that we just read, how fear can push us to evil, and how God's love invites us into his goodness. You may have noticed that this has come up a lot in the teachings here at Red Hills, and that's because the Spirit seems to be really bringing this theme from fear to love into the forefront of our consciousness as we pastor in this town called Newburgh. What does it look like for us to leave behind fear and to step into and accept, into, accept the invitation into Christ's love? Now, it's natural to look at this story that we just read and try to relate to Stephen, right? Right? We like to relate to the hero. We like to be the hero of the story. I was kind of an intense kid growing up. You could probably guess that. And <clears throat> I had very strong convictions at a very young age. I had very strong opinions. And I remember one time I was around 10 or 11, and uh, when I was driving to school with my mom one day, she was driving, I was riding to school, um, she asked me, Lane, what, what do you want to do when you grow up? Not unlike many other conversations we'd had throughout the years. But this particular day, I paused, I pondered, and I said, com with complete seriousness, I said, I'm not sure, but I think I need to die in the service of those I love. Which is what every mother wants to hear, right? <laughs> um, like I said, I was a really intense kid. I'd probably just watch Braveheart or something, and I was just ready to lay my life down on the line, right? We like martyrdom. It's so clear, it's so simple, good guys and bad guys, and lay my life down for the people that I love. I love reading about the martyrs. I really do, especially in the early church. I think all of us should learn about the martyrs and what, they have, what their faith has for us. But if I'm being honest, I'm often hard on the religious elite because Jesus is in the New Testament, right? But if I'm going to be honest, 99% of the time, I am forced to confront the religious leader in me. I'm forced to confront what religiosity in me can do when out of step with a relationship with God, because that's what the religious elite do. They are desperately trying to keep from waking the angry bear that is Rome, understandable, and they're trying to get the people in line so that God can see that they are honoring the law and come back and rescue them. They believe that if they got everyone who adhered to the law, this would convince God to return for his people and break this long period of silence that they've been in. The problem is that God did come, but they didn't see it. They missed it. Pharisees were so preoccupied with trying to get God's attention by adhering to the law that they failed to recognize him when he walked into the room. This is religion without relationship, right? This is devotion without affection. This is commitment without connection. When we work really hard for union with God rather than from union with God, we create these cycles within us of frustration and resentment and obsession. That's what happens to us. And ultimately, we learn to fear. We learn to fear the very God that desperately wants to reveal his love to us. 
And this is what happened to the religious elite. They were given over to fear, fear of Rome, fear of God, fear of Jesus, and ultimately fear of Stephen. And whether or not I like to admit it, I am more like the religious leaders than I am like Stephen. I'm more likely to succumb to fear than I am to give myself in sacrificial love like Stephen, like Jesus. But the good news is that Jesus invites us into a new humanity, redeemed creation, where fear is no more, where every human being, despite their differences and their trauma, can be welcomed into a beloved community united by Christ's love. That's the good news. So we're going to look back on this passage and see what was going on in the church at the time, who this guy Stephen was, and why the religious leaders reacted so strongly the way that they did. And we're going to take some time to reflect and examine in our own hearts the religious elite within all of us. So we open in on this interesting situation happening in the church. The church is growing rapidly. Christians are growing exponentially in numbers, and they're pretty much all Jews at this point. Remember? Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. Pretty much all Jews right now. But we are seeing that there are some Hebraic Jews and some Hellenistic Jews, ones that are ethnically Hebrew and ones that are mixed and Greek. They're all coming together in the name of Jesus. They're all being empowered by the Holy Spirit. They're all continuing to provide for one another's needs, especially the widows among them. But we do see a hint of their old humanity trying to cling to the new humanity that God is building when we see favoritism start to creep into the community. See, all of them are Christians, but the real Jews, the Jewish Jews, the Hebrew Jews, are getting prioritized over the Jewish diaspora over the Greek Jews. They're caring for those widows more, and the Greek Jews are getting neglected. There's a natural human instinct for us to want to care for people who are like us, to prioritize people who look and act and think the way that we do. But the kingdom of heaven is structured differently, right? So they bring this problem to the apostles, and the apostles, rather than trying to manage this kind of logistical situation themselves, they appoint uh, these deacons because they realize that they are supposed to devote themselves to the teaching of Christ's teachings and eventually the writing of it. So they appoint these deacons. What's a deacon? Well, our polity is a little different in the church today than it was in first century uh, uh, Jerusalem. But basically, deacons were important leaders dedicated to the social well-being of the church. So you could define them as spirit-filled and wise leaders dedicated to the social well-being of the church. So they're facilitating and meeting the tangible needs of the community. Now, what is not happening here is the apostles saying, we can't be bothered with this nonsense. Let's appoint some deacons to take care of it. We can't get our hands ready. We have better stuff to do. No, rather the opposite. The apostles know what their primary role and calling is in the church. They know how they need to spend their time and resources. And so rather than letting this really important issue get swept under the rug, they appoint a new important kind of leader in the church. These leaders are, as the scriptures say, full of wisdom and filled with the Spirit. And we see the apostles laying hands on them which we talk about laying hands on all the time. But back then, there was a spiritual significance and authority and a mantle that was placed upon someone who was being, had their hands being laid on. This was normally reserved for like scholars or anointing sacrifices. So whatever was happening here, the apostles thought this was really important, and they laid hands on these leaders. Now, all the names that are listed here are Hellenistic names, which is fascinating because it shows that they appointed leaders from within the community of the people that were being overlooked. 
So specifically, these Hellenistic Jews that were being overlooked, they appointed Hellenistic Jews to be the deacons in the church because they had a special compassion for what was going on, and they were going to ensure that this didn't happen to anyone else. And they were pleased with the decision. So we see the community drift momentarily from this vision of the new humanity, right? The Spirit leads the apostles to course correct. Like, hey, oh, not not over there. Stay over here. So they appoint these leaders full of wisdom and character to oversee those in the margins. And these kingdom principles are continuing to be carried out. Now, one of these appointed deacons is a very important person in biblical history, Stephen. And Stephen is on fire, right? He's going around laying hands on people, seeing miracles break out. He's caring for the poor. He's feeding the hungry. He's full of wisdom, and he's a, the boy can preach. We're going to see that in chapter 7. He's basically kicking butt and taking names on behalf of the kingdom, right? But he's filled with the Spirit. He's filled with the Spirit. That's why any of us can ever do what any of us has been called to do by God, because we're filled with the Spirit. Also among these deacons is a man named Philip, and I love Philip. We're not going to talk about him in this series, but we're going to talk about him later. And he's the first Christian to take the gospel to someone outside of Judea, to someone named the Ethiopian, and I love that story. It also says that many priests become Christians, and I wish Luke wrote more about that, because that fascinates me. It shows that there were those in religious leadership who are seeing the truth. It says becoming obedient to the faith, that Jesus is the fulfillment of, of the law that they've been upholding all this time and the God that they've been serving. Think about this. The priests, not all of them lived near the temple, right? Sometimes they'd only get like a week or two to worship at the temple. So they'd spend their whole life, maybe once a year, being able to make a sacrifice or to to be in God's presence. But they would draw a lottery to see who would get to go into the Holy of Holies. It might not ever happen to a person in their lifetime. So they've been doing this their whole life, just waiting for the moment they might get to step into the presence of God. And now that same presence, that same spirit of God, because of what Jesus has done, is gifted to everyone who calls on his name. That's powerful for a priest, right? So all this really great stuff is happening. But then the story takes a bit of a turn. There are those who belong to a synagogue who hear Stephen preach and they, quote, could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he spoke. They're basically trying to out-debate Stephen, and he is wiping the floor with them, right? His wisdom given by the Spirit is profound. It reminds me in Matthew chapter 7 at the end of the Sermon on the Mount where they say they were amazed because Jesus spoke as someone different from their teachers, that he spoke as someone who had authority. People were always trying to out-debate Jesus, but it never happened because truth was on full display in Jesus. Truth is not an idea. Truth is a person, right? This person is now alive in Stephen. And this brings up this interesting dynamic that people, when they encounter the truth of God, those who are humble, they tend to receive and to be transformed by that truth. But those who are proud tend to have their hearts hardened. It's like the Pharaoh during the Exodus, right? How many opportunities was he given to change his mind? How many plagues did it take? How much pressure did it take? And he still said no. Proximity to the truth hardens the hearts of the proud, but transforms the hearts of the humble. Proximity to the truth hardens the hearts of the proud and transforms the hearts of the humble. And we often hear something like this and think about people who won't listen to us, right? Oh yeah, those hard-hearted people that won't take on my opinions, right? We think about them. But perhaps we would do well to consider what pride does to our own hearts, how we seem like we are unable to receive and to change. 
This is why humility is the good soil for the seed of the gospel, right? But the members of the synagogue, they're not humble. They hear Stephen speak the truth, and they are threatened. They're afraid. So they conspire against Jesus, or sorry, against uh, Stephen, to accuse him of blasphemy, which would get him killed. So they get some people to accuse Stephen of blasphemy. They say that his teaching is against the law of Moses, which is ironic, because the law of Moses says, do not bear false witness against another, right? They're breaking the very law. They are claiming that he is breaking, by misquoting, by the way. Jesus never said that he would destroy the temple. He said that it would be destroyed and that he would rebuild it in three days, right? So all those who have been misquoted and mistweeted out there, there's, there's compassion for you here. And then it says that the council, hearing Stephen's accusations, because Stephen is like, no, this isn't what's going on. You guys are the ones on trial here. And then Stephen, before the council, they look on his face, and they said that his face was glowing like that of an angel. This is a direct reference, likely, to Exodus, when Moses comes down the mountain, having received the commandments from God, and his face was aglow with his presence. The religious leaders are allowing their fear and their jealousy to blind them to the truth that is quite literally staring them in the face. That Stephen is carrying the very presence of God that he is supposedly blaspheming. That he is walking in the anointing of the same Moses whose law he is supposedly violating, right? So the high priest asks Stephen, sorry, the high priest asks Stephen if these accusations are true. And Stephen replies with this long, we skipped it this morning because it's very long, but it's a long, excellent sermon about how Jesus is not the abolishment of the law, but that he is the fulfillment of it, that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that Jewish law has been pointing to this entire time. He describes Abraham, Joseph, and Moses, how they all point to Jesus. And then Stephen challenges the religious leaders by basically saying that the temple is a good thing, but the temple's become your idol. Stephen calls them stiff-necked, which is like this arrogant stubbornness. And this made them very angry when he said this, because that was usually something the Old Testament prophets would use. They would say this, you are stiff-necked people when they weren't obeying the law of Moses. And he accuses them of having uncircumcised hearts. We read that and go, what? <laughs> what does that mean? It means that although they strictly adhere to the law physically, like being circumcised, that they don't allow the law to transform who they are, which is what the law is supposed to do. Their worship of God has become their God. And we can do that too. I'll let you fill in the lines of what that means. So Stephen flips this whole trial on its head. It's, uh, he's been put on trial before the Sanhedrin, but it's they who are actually on trial before God. And he knows that accusing them like this will lead to his death. He knows. But he says it full of conviction in his heart. And it says that they, strip uh, that they strip down, they throw their coats at Saul, we'll get to him later, at, the, at his feet, probably because it was hot outside, and if you're going to stone someone, it takes a lot of physical energy. But this imagery is specific. Luke is leveraging what's happening here to describe something. Normally, they would strip someone down and then stone them. The fact that they are stripping down and neglected to strip down Stephen shows Stephen is not the one guilty. The Pharisees are guilty. The religious elite, they're guilty here. And Stephen looks up, and this beautiful picture, he sees the heavens opened up. He sees Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father, glorified, 
reassuring Stephen that he has favor with God despite the hatred of man. In this, I wonder if Stephen is hearing the words of Jesus. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you, they persecuted me. And Stephen echoes the words of Jesus on the cross. He says, receive my spirit, which is what Jesus said. And as Jesus hung on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And Jesus now kneels before them and says, Father, forgive them. Do not hold this sin against them. We see that Stephen, even while he's being stoned, had compassion on those who were killing him, just like Jesus. And it's clear that Stephen said all of these harsh words to the Sanhedrin because he desperately wanted them to see Jesus, who set out of love, and who was there watching it all and approving of it. A young Saul, who would later be known as Paul, who wrote a big chunk of the book that you're holding. (laughs) You see, we want to relate to Stephen. We want to be the hero. We want to be the martyr. But a more humble and probably a more accurate posture to take might be to consider that we are more like the religious leaders than we'd like to admit. We see in this passage that we just read that the religious leaders, they're they're afraid of blasphemy, right? They perceive Jesus as an idol, and they allowed their fear of the Christian community to drive them to evil. They allowed their fear to keep them from hearing the truth. Whether or not I like to admit it, I'm more like that than I am like Stephen. I'm more ready to succumb to fear than I am to give myself in sacrificial love. But let's let's talk about fear for a second. Now, we all experience fear. Fear is not inherently evil. Experiencing fear is a survival mechanism, right? Fear triggers that flight or uh, fight response in all of us, and that response can save your life. Anyone ever been in a situation where it triggered that response and that fear kept you alive? No one's ever been? Okay. (laughs) Really safe community here in Newburgh. That's great. (laughs) But those flight or fight responses that keep you safe, when they overtake our humanity, when they occur in inappropriate spaces, They can be weaponized against the people that we love or the people that we're trying to protect, right? Post-traumatic stress for veterans is a good example of this, right? Fear keeps a soldier alive on the battlefield, but a soldier needs to experience healing from the trauma of that war so that their responses don't carry over into their everyday life, into inappropriate spaces and cause them to harm the people that they love, right? Experiencing fear is not sinful. Now, succumbing to fear, giving into fear, allowing fear to be the driving force and the shaping power in one's life, that has the potential for evil. So you can remember this. Experiencing fear is not sinful. Succumbing to fear engenders evil. Experiencing fear is not sinful, but succumbing to fear engenders evil. Fear is how ancient humans survived, right? They formed these tribes, They unite themselves against common threats. But the hope of the new humanity is about more than survival. It's about flourishing. Fear can temporarily keep you alive, but only God's love can allow you to flourish for eternity, right? If we take a look at some of the biggest hate groups in America, for example, right? KKK, 
white supremacy, neo-Nazism, right? These groups are primarily motivated by fear. They use fear as the primary motivator to get people to join their tribe. The great replacement theory, which is kind of the idealism that drives a lot of these groups, it's this fear that welcoming and embracing other cultures means the loss of another cultural identity. And if we are convinced that there is a threat when we are driven by fear, we're capable of a lot of evil because we're doing it for the sake of protecting those we love, right? We don't have a lot of control over the trauma that we experience, but we do have a responsibility for what we do in response to that trauma. We can react in fear or we can respond in love. One framework that I think can be helpful to think about this is what I call the, the imperial tribalism versus kingdom community, okay? Imperial tribalism versus kingdom community. I'm going to throw up the, the framework here on the screen. Imperial tribalism means that human beings are united by fear to survive. This requires that we other people, that we're united against a common enemy. Oh, I think I messed up how I wanted them to do this. Let's just throw the whole thing up there. Go to the last slide there. Sorry about that. So, so tribalism means I'm being united by fear to survive. It requires that we other people. It says we are united against a common enemy. It fears differences. It's an us or them mentality, a zero-sum game. It's us or them. Now, a kingdom community, this is different. This is the new humanity gathered together in the name of love. It requires that we, embrace, uh, sorry, that we embrace and welcome the other. It says we love our enemies like we are neighbors until we are family. It welcomes diversity, and it's a we are them mentality, positive sum game. We are them. I'm going to leave that up there for a second. Tribalism says human beings are united by fear to survive. Kingdom community says the new humanity is gathered together in the name of love. Tribalism says it requires that we other people. Kingdom community requires that we welcome and embrace the other. Imperial tribalism says that we are united against a common enemy. Kingdom community says that we love our enemies like we are neighbors until we are family. Imperial tribalism fears differences. Kingdom community welcomes diversity. Imperial tribalism says it's us or them. It's a zero-sum game. And kingdom community says we are them. It's a positive-sum game. Now, this is not to say that we don't need to be united against a common enemy. Surely we do. There is an enemy. But those who follow the teachings of Jesus know that we no longer get the luxury of having human enemies. He instructs his followers to love our enemies. So who's our enemy now? Paul says in Ephesians 6, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's our only enemy. God's vision of the new humanity is one people of many tribes, not opposing one another, but standing together in victory over evil that Jesus delivered. We've used this term new humanity a few times. This is a theological concept that we see in the New Testament. Going along with the recreation themes that we see in Acts, Acts is kind of like the genesis of the New Testament. We see God remaking humanity into a redeemed state, namely where the weapons of tribalism are no longer needed. 
and where a kingdom community can flourish. Paul writes elsewhere in Colossians chapter 3, he says, In Christ there is not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, bar, sorry, barbarian and Scythian. I almost say Slytherin every time. That's not it. Um, <laughs> slave and free. But Christ is all and in all. Therefore, God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a grievance against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of all unity. Whoa. Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of all unity. You now all have homework to get that tattooed somewhere on your face this week, okay? <laughs> I'm just kidding. That's a sermon for another time. This new humanity, it transcends and celebrates culture. And in this new humanity, we move some, from simply being these half-human creatures that are trying to survive to fully restored human beings who can flourish with God. That's what the new humanity is. And in this passage, we see the contrast of the new humanity being built and the old humanity enacting evil. Human beings helping one another to flourish as the apostles anoint these leaders to specifically oversee and care for people's um, uh, uh, needs in the community. And then we see broken people allowing their fear to cause destruction. The religious leaders fearful and jealous of Stephen executing someone who deeply loves the same God they claim to worship. Some of, us, some of us in this room, we need to be humbled and to reckon with just how much fear we are holding on to. We need to ask the Spirit to reveal to us, where am I reacting in fear instead of responding in love? Because we all do it. We all do it. I did it this week. <laughs> we all have this propensity to do this. I'm going to show you this framework. I use this framework to actually um, train our leadership team here at Red Hills. It's called the uh, drama triangle, okay? Now, we have a tendency when there's tension, when there's conflict, to do what's on the left. We like to feel like the victim or to become the hero, and we see the person opposing us as a villain. We villainize them. Bad guys, good guys. Martyrdom and victory, right? We like this clean picture. But the hope of reconciliation does not allow for that framework for us. We are always to do the work of reconciliation, where we don't victimize ourselves, we don't villainize the other, we don't ask for a hero. You always move towards the work of reconciliation. We always try to move towards the work of reconciliation and unity, to realize that when it comes to brothers and sisters in Christ, there are no villains. But it's more natural for me to feel threatened and to create this tribalistic narrative where I need to be rescued from the villain. I notice this struggle within me all the time. And I'm going to tell you a story, a situation that actually happened to me recently, where the religious elite was alive within me and in full swing, okay? Years ago, I was at another church, and I was overseeing a ministry that involved youth. And I made a decision that I felt quite justified in, but it made one particular parent pretty upset. And quite frankly, uh, I was intimidated by this person. 
I was younger. They were much older than me. In simplistic terms, I was afraid. I was afraid of them. So I made some decisions to protect myself and my, my team. I prioritized us over them. Me over them, right? I villainized this person because it's far easier to villainize than it is to humanize. Because humanizing, empathizing, that's work. <laughs> it takes humility. And in this particular situation, I felt confident and justified. One might say that I felt prideful. Well, years go by, and I failed to address this. The parent wanted to meet with me to talk about all this, and excuses always came up, mostly from me. And not too long ago, a person who we both know reminded me that this conversation had yet to take place, so I felt convicted, and I arranged for this meeting to take place, but I wasn't happy about it. So I reached out to, to both this parent and the mutual friend so that they could help mediate the conversation because I wasn't feeling like I was in a good headspace. So I'm driving. I'm driving from here in Newburgh to another place. I won't tell you where. About 45 minutes away, right? The AC had just given out in my car, and it was very hot, so I was already pretty aggravated. <laughs> and I start having, it's a 45-minute drive, and I had no AC. Um, so I start having this very honest and frustrated conversation with Jesus. And I do this thing now where I imagine Jesus physically in front of me. It just helps me pray. And so he kind of looks like a meld between the Jesus of the chosen and other things that I've seen. I asked Jesus if it was okay, and I think it is. So I'm praying to Jesus. And it must have been very jarring for people seeing me in the car because I'm sweaty, I'm aggravated, and I'm like talking to no one in the seat next to me. And I'm having this conversation with an empty seat. Jesus is there with me. But I'll never forget this moment because about halfway through the drive, I'm praying, and I'm breaking down, and I'm like, Jesus, what do you want from me in this? Why? What are we, why are we doing this? What do you want from me? And after I sat for a moment, I felt one word settle into my heart and mind very clearly. Humility. I didn't like that, <laughs> but that's what I felt. Humility. So I went into that church. I met them both in the lobby. We went to our mutual friend's office, and I had gone into this meeting completely intent on defending my position and putting this parent in their place. Full honesty. That's what I was prepared to do. I was allowing my fear to create defensiveness and arrogance in me, but I remembered that word that Jesus gave to me, humility. And the second this parent started speaking, I felt what I can only describe as the weight of God's presence on me. I can't describe it any other way. And as they spoke about how I had offended them, about how they felt hurt by me, I felt a compassion for them that couldn't have come from me. I felt compassion. And I remembered how C.S. Lewis talks about human beings in mere Christianity. He says that if, a, if, if I were to see that parent fully restored to their humanity, in all their glory that God had intended, I'd be tempted to worship them in all of their beauty. And I began to tear up as I realized that I had villainized one of God's children. I had turned one of God's children into a villain. And by the grace of God and the power of his presence, after they had spoken, after I had spoken, I realized that I actually needed to repent of some stuff, that I needed to ask for some forgiveness in this situation. And here's the thing. I didn't walk away from the meeting agreeing with everything they said. There were still some aspects of the conversation that I felt strongly about, but it didn't matter 
because I had villainized one of God's children. And because of that, I made some mistakes. Mistakes that hurt them. And I needed to repent. I needed to ask for forgiveness. And after they left the room, I sat with this other pastor and I, I wept, you guys. Like, I felt the spirit settle on me in a comforting and challenging way. And I, I sobbed for like five, ten minutes. I just sobbed. I just cried. I was heartbroken. And I told that pastor, I told him, I was so wrong. And it is so scary how confident I was in my wrongness. Very sobering. God humbled me in this really deep way. On the other side of that villain that I had created in my mind, Jesus was waiting to encounter me. I've been learning a lot from that point forward that we have a fork in the road before us, all of us do, every day. We can react in fear or we can respond in love. What does that look like? I'm going to show up another slide here. Just throw the whole thing up there. I don't trust what I said. We'll just throw the whole thing up there. <laughs> when I'm reacting in fear, I'm being led by my thoughts, which are not always accurate, right? <laughs> They're not always in line with reality. I'm quick to speak. I'm defensive and I'm argumentative and I'm arrogant. But when I'm responding in love, I'm being led in prayer because God has a better perspective than, of reality than I do always, every time. I'm quick to listen, I'm gracious, and I'm curious, and there's that word again, I'm humble. You leave that up there for a minute. What situations, friends, what relationships in your life do you find yourself reacting in fear? Because it's those places where you might be missing out on an, a powerful encounter with Jesus. If the religious elite had just looked up and seen what Stephen was seeing, seeing that the God that they were claiming to protect was resonating, shining off of his face. Maybe we'd see Jesus ruling and reigning over the universe, and maybe we'd see a villain in our story as reflecting the image of God. The good news is that for us, Jesus on the cross had compassion for those who were killing him. Stephen, on his knees, prayed for those who were stoning him, our God is gracious, and we don't have to be trapped in this cycle of trauma and fear and harm. What would it look like for us to be the kind of people who did the work of reconciliation, who stopped villainizing, stopped victimizing, stopped heroizing, and started doing the work of reconciliation? What if we put in the time? What if we put in the stillness and the prayer to examine ourselves, to ask God to reveal to us where we are failing to live out the promise of the new humanity? Where am I trying to other people when he's trying to embrace them? Where am I trying to welcome people? Where am I clinging to the practices of, that have protected me, that have allowed me to survive, but now they're out of step with what God wants from me? Am I coming out of survival and stepping into flourishing? Am I ready to set aside fear and the ways of imperial tribalism? Am I ready to embrace the new humanity and the kingdom community where I'm quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, more curious than I am convinced, where I embody humility and not arrogance, where I'm ready to heal from the trauma of my past so that I can love better right now? Where are those relationships? 
that have been dictated by fear, by defensiveness? Where is there a need for reconciliation? Where do you need to set aside your defense mechanisms and pick up your new humanity? Where do you need to do that? Where do you need to see the image of God reflected in someone's face? Where do you need to see that? I'm going to challenge you. Don't get a tattoo on your face, but reach out to that person this week. Maybe not this week. I take that back. Think about that person and consider reaching out. Don't actually do it right away because that's reaction. But think about this person. Invite the Holy Spirit to speak to you about them. Learn to put on their skin and to have compassion for them. And then when you and the Holy Spirit have done the work, when you've humbled yourself, when you've come ready to repent without caveats, reach out. They may not react well. They may react really well. It's not up to you. Are you willing to do the work to do on your end what is necessary for reconciliation? I'm going to put up a breath prayer. It's really just a scripture from one, Psalm 139. And we're going to take three minutes to be in silent prayer. Here's how a breath prayer works. With every breath in, you say a phrase in your heart. And with every breath out, you say another phrase. Typically, it's just two phrases. I put four up here. Breathe in. Search me, God, and know my heart. Breathe out. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Breathe in. See if there's any offensive way in me. And breathe out. And lead me in the way everlasting. As we breathe in and out during this time, imagine that you are breathing in the Spirit and breathing out fear. That you're breathing in His love and breathing out fear. That you're breathing in His presence and breathing out the old humanity. They are breathing in the new promise of what he's given us and breathing out the old ways. Breathe. Just breathe and pray this prayer. Lord, I pray that as we submit ourselves to you now in silent prayer, that you would do the work. I pray that you would draw us to reconciliation. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen.